Already, you should have turned to Matthew chapter 5 right now, and I'm going to ask you if in reverence to God's word you will stand together with me and we will read our text this morning. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he began teaching them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. you may be seated. As we've been working our way through the life of Christ, um, we're kind of at the point in Christ's ministry that I would say he is probably at the peak of his popularity. Matter of fact, if Gallup had done a poll, he probably would have 95% approval rating of how he was handling his messiahship here. I mean, Christ would need to get into a boat at one point and be pushed off, you know, so that as the people were, you know, on the shore pushing in on him so he could get out so everyone could see him and everybody could hear him. Great crowds are following him. Matter of fact, the end of chapter 4 last week, we saw these encouraging words. It said in chapter 4, verse 23, that Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. News about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering in various diseases and pains and demoniacs and epilepsies and paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds, that say, followed him from Galilee, and that's not just the town. It's talking, it's talking about the whole region of Galilee there. And crowds from the Decapolis, that would be the ten cities, Deca meaning ten, from ten cities were following him. From Jerusalem, from Judea would have been the southern part of Israel, from beyond the Jordan. I mean, again, think about this. We're not in the, the day and age that they just tune to their TVs or they hop in their car and they drive somewhere. These are people are making, you know, great distances, traveling days, weeks to hear Jesus Christ, to see Jesus Christ. And so, again, he, he's experiencing tremendous popularity at this time. And so as we come to the Beatitudes, he comes in chapter, verse 1 there. He says, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to them, and he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them. Now, as you read this, you may get the idea that Christ go up into the mountain and says his disciples came to them, that he, he's talking about the 12 disciples that, that actually would ultimately follow him, and that's not the case at all. Matter of fact, if you go to the book of Luke, and it records the, this same event, you know, it talks about 
once again, these massive crowds from Judea and Jerusalem and from Tyre and from Sidon, they're all there and they, and they go up to follow him and to hear him. That word disciple there, the word is, it's a Greek word, Matthias, and it means a learner or a pupil. And so here it's being used in just a generic sense when it's talking about his disciples, basically anybody who had come to learn, you know, who, who had come to be taught. And all of those that were coming to hear Christ, we know that they hadn't yet had the conviction that he was the Messiah, but they were coming to learn. They were coming to see. Now, in this sermon of the Sermon of the Mount, you know, we said it's, it's kind of like it's the longest sermon we have of Christ that is recorded. We know, again, he, he taught all over the place, but it's recorded for a reason. It's kind of like, you know, we said last week, his political platform. I mean, this kind of lays it all out, you know, where he is going and what his ministry is all about. And in this sermon, he's going to warn them about trusting the teaching of the Pharisees. He's going to warn them to not build their, their lives upon sinking sand, but put it upon the rock of Jesus Christ. He's going to tell them to choose the narrow way to live, which leads to life over the, the wide way, you know, the broad way that leads a person to death. And if you think about the message that Christ is preaching here, and again, it comes on the heel of John the Baptist and his preaching, and we looked at him about a month or so ago, if you remember, when John the Baptist came, he was the forerunner of Christ. He preached righteousness as a prerequisite to enter into the kingdom of God. John the Baptist made the same demands that the Old Testament made. He would talk about the law, he would the Mosaic law, he would talk about the prophets. Christ now is coming, and he's offering himself as the king. And he is making the same demands in this message. Christ will say in this sermon that only the truly righteous will ever enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, whenever John the Baptist taught righteousness is the prerequisite to heaven, that when Jesus taught that in this sermon, the you know, kind of the guidelines and what you need to do to get into heaven, it was never challenged by the Pharisees. You know, in all of their Mosaic law and their traditions. It was never challenged by the Sadducees in all of their ceremonies. The people simply accepted it. Righteousness, a person's righteousness, has always been a prerequisite for being with God. The only question is what righteousness? Whose righteousness? What kind of righteousness? is Jesus Christ talking about here. Because of Christ's preaching, the nation is going to be faced with two different, two different concepts of righteousness. They're going to have the righteousness that has been taught to them by the Pharisees and by the Sadducees, you know, that pretty much emphasize attending feasts and, and the rituals and, and keeping the traditions and then they're going to be introduced to another righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is going to come ultimately as a result of putting our faith, our trust by the grace of Jesus Christ to be called into his kingdom and to be forgiven. A righteousness from Jesus that is not something that we earn, but a righteousness that you can only receive as a free gift. 
It's a result of Christ's death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That is the only righteousness that is ever going to reach the level of the righteousness that is needed to be into heaven. And we can try to live the Mosaic law, we can try to do all the do's and don'ts, but we will fall far short of that righteous standard, that glory of God. But only Christ, God's Son, lives that righteousness. He ultimately will go to the cross, give his life as a payment for your sin, for my sin, and then he will offer us that free gift, that gift of grace that we sang about during the worship time, that we were reminded of, that marvelous grace Christ offers us. That is the righteousness that Jesus Christ is going to talk about throughout this sermon. So we can see very quickly why this sermon is going to hit at the very heart of our lives. It's going to speak to us wherever we are in our relationship, whether we you know, don't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ and we're seeking and we're listening and we're trying to you know, get this figured out and, and get answers, or whether we've been a child of God for quite a long time. You know, it's going to speak to, to our lives today. First of all, if you haven't given your heart, your life to Christ, this sermon will help you cut through the religious fog and all the empty dead ends and ultimately lead you to only one hope, and that's a Savior, Jesus Christ. Scripture will say that there is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. He's going to make it very, very clear. And this whole sermon is going to ultimately build to that moment that we cannot attain righteousness ourselves. We need somebody else. We need Jesus Christ. And even if you're a child of God here today, this message, I tell you what, it might even be more piercing to us who are Christians. Because as I was, as I was thinking about this this past week, I think, I think there's still a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. I think, I think Christians have a tendency, I have a tendency to have a little bit of Pharisee in me. You know, that part of us that settles for observances, you know, our traditions, our formats, and ultimately allows a staleism to settle into our Christianity. You know, we, we lose that freshness, that zeal for God as we start, you know, more concerned about the packaging than the actual gift itself. And it's so easy for us as Christians to, to kind of be drawn to that. That part of us that sometimes looks at others and judges them by whether or not they do what we do or, or don't do. Do they go where we go? Do they worship the same way we do it? And it's very easy for this to creep into us as Christians as we look at those people around us. That part that can keep the convicting hand of God away by soothing our conscience, by saying, well, look what I've done. You know, look what I'm doing for the Lord. This message is to all who are seeking Christ, who are, are claiming him. It has something to say to us. And probably, if this whole verse kind of had a, 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 a statement that it all hinges upon, we'd probably go to verse 20 of chapter 5. Verse 20 of chapter 5, it says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. In other words, you must get past the externals. I mean, they had, I mean, just think about that, receiving that. I mean, here were their religious leaders. 
I mean, these Pharisees, these scribes, this was their life. I mean, they wore it on their foreheads, they wore it on their arms, they wore it in their dress, in their actions, everything that they did. And Christ steps back and he looks at them and he says, unless your righteousness surpasses them, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Unless your righteousness passes that of the Baptist, or that of Colonial Baptist Church, or that of Pastor Larry, there is no one who has that righteousness that has hit that standard. And he says, unless it surpasses that, you can't come into the kingdom of heaven. And you get to the point and you say, what? If they can't, I'm not going to be able to. It's supposed to get us to that place. It's supposed to get us exasperated to the point to say uh, of a hopelessness that we have within us. And once we get to that place of our, that we no more have hope in ourselves, are we ready to hear about God's righteousness? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now we all know, and we, we have said this many times here, that technically Christiani Christianity is not a religion. You know, I know it's listed probably under religion, but in a broad sense, maybe it would be considered that. But religion, basically a religion means one's moral standards, one's codes that a person lives by. So you've got Mormon, Jehovah Witnesses, you know, whether you're a humanist, you know, Buddhist, you know, whatever it might be, they all have this moral code that they live by. But Christianity is not about moral codes. It's not about our morality. It's not actually even about our practices. Definitely those are going to be affected, but that's not what it's all about. Christianity is about a person. It's about a person named Jesus Christ. God, God's Son, come down, step down to this earth to be born of a man, to be tempted like we are, yet without sin, to walk in the very shoes that we are walking in today, and then ultimately to give his life a perfect sacrifice for our sin. That's what Christianity is. It's not about our moral codes. It's not about how we line the pews up or how we decorate the front of the church. It's not about a building or a steeple or anything along those lines. It's not about how we dress on Sundays. It's about Jesus Christ. And that, in the end, on our righteousness and that standard is all that's going to matter. Have we accepted Christ's death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin? To be the payment, to be my righteousness, his righteousness imputed into me for his death on the cross, his, his, to be a covering, to be an atonement for my sin. And that's why this warning is so near to us where it says, you know, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that you will not enter the, the kingdom of heaven. Because it, it leaves us only one answer. And that answer is Jesus Christ. When John the Baptist, when he preached, he challenged the Pharisees. He challenged the people to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. A new life you know, that, that, that repentance is the proof of that genuine face. faith. excuse me. And as Christ begins this sermon, we're going to get to the Beatitudes here. As he begins this sermon, he's going to be asking, he's going to be saying pretty much the same thing that John the Baptist was saying. That when a person genuinely becomes part of Christ's kingdom, he's going to say, here are the characteristics of their life. And we've named them the Beatitudes. So with that, let's go ahead and start. In verse 3. 
It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, isn't this what this is all about? It's talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, you know, eternity, heaven. You know, he says, those who are poor in spirit, he said, have that blessing of being in the kingdom of heaven. Now again, we, we talked about this a little last week. I want you to remember that each of these beatitudes that he tells us to be this or be that, they have an immediate effect. They have a blessing that's involved with them. That word blessing, it's interesting. It literally means happy or satisfied. Happy is the man. Satisfied is the woman who is poor in spirit. And note also, with this happiness, it's connected to our holiness. It talks about poor in spirit and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being pure in heart and, and having mercy, all those things. Again, holiness and happiness, they're inseparable in God's kingdom. And each attitude has a future promise. He said, when you are poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. He talks about you shall see God or that you shall be filled. There is also somewhat of a logical order that these beatitudes are presented. It's just not a potpourri of, of, of pithy little sayings that Christ is giving us here. They have an order. They have a purpose. You know, first he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now that word poor in the, in the Greek, it means a beggar, literally a beggar. I mean, think about somebody who has to turn to begging. That's their, their, their only resolve that they have is to beg. They have no resources left. They have nothing in themselves. They are an empty. Literally, a beggar is dependent upon someone else. They're in need of someone else. So when it's talking about a person who is poor in spirit, again, they're talking about them being spiritually empty then in and of themselves, they have no resources. There's nothing I can do. I'm in need of someone else. I'm in need of someone else to, to meet that need. And again, we're going to point, points us right to Jesus Christ. Spiritually empty, no resources, nothing I can do. But there's something that Jesus Christ can do. Verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Okay, those who mourn. You know, biblically, mourning refers to a person, you know, who's, who sees their sin, acknowledges their sin, confession before God. You know, the, the one against God, the one whom they've sinned, the one whom they've, they've wronged. And again, so we talk about this progression. A person is poor in spirit, recognize they have no righteousness in and of themselves. They mourn. In other words, they're acknowledging their their need of a righteousness before God. They're confessing themselves that they don't have this righteousness. So kind of verse 3 leads to verse 4, which leads to verse 5, where it says, Blessed are the, the, the Gentile or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now gentleness or meekness here, it doesn't mean the person who has a low self-esteem and, you know, kind of talks, oh, and, you know, is just apologetic all the time and, you know, everybody kind of runs over them. They're kind of doormats. That's not what it's talking about here at all. Meekness recognizes God's authority and submits itself to it. We've used the definition of it being strength and control. That we still have a strength, but we have put it under the submission 
of Jesus Christ. Strength under control. Meekness and obedience, they, they kind of go hand in hand. Obedience to Jesus Christ. The unrighteous, they're characterized by a self-assertive pride that won't you know, give itself to Christ's rule. Because part of being a Christian is to accept Christ as your Savior and as your what? As your Lord. And, and, and that's putting ourselves under the need of, 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 of that Lord, that God, Jesus Christ, that King. To be in God's kingdom means to submit ourselves to God. Fourth thing in verse 6, it said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, the righteous, they have a thirst for God. The worldly, they have a thirst for the things of the world. Very, very simple here. You know, those who are accepted by God will be characterized by having an appetite for him. I mean, do you have an appetite for him? A hunger, a thirst for, for Christ, for that righteousness? And again, if we just stop, stop for a moment and, and put these four, you know, beatitudes together here, you have a beautiful and accurate picture of what it means to be a Christian and how a person becomes a Christian, how a person gets saved and, and has that righteousness of Christ. It first talks about being a sinner, destitute, empty, no hope, poor in spirit. Then it talks about falling before Christ, calling for his forgiveness, confessing ourselves, mourning. Once received, submitting our lives to Jesus Christ as our Lord, that meekness. And then desiring to grow in our union with Christ and to serve him, to hunger and thirst, to know him, to know that righteousness. And these things, these aren't just given here for us to have a one-time action. Rather, they're kind of a continual attitude that we're supposed to have. First of all, that ultimate attitude, you know, to bring us into the kingdom, that one time that I will see myself that, you know what, if I die today, I, I'm not going to stand God, before God in my own righteousness. I'm not going to be able to point to all these good things that I did because he's going to point to all the bad things that I did to keep me out of heaven. You know, it, that doesn't work. So that, 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 that poor in spirit, that one time I need to come to that place to say, I am empty. And then I mourn over and grieve over my sin. And I accept Christ. I put myself under him. And then I hunger and thirst to become like him. We all should have that one time. That's how I become a Christian. But it isn't just for that one time. These beatitudes are showing us how as well we should live today as Christians. As a Christian, I still need to recognize that I am poor in spirit, that I don't stand in my righteousness here today, that I stand only because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I need to have that attitude. I need to mourn and grieve over my sin. Yes, my sin is forgiven, you know, but I, I don't take a haphazard attitude towards my sin. It should grieve me. It should cause me to repent and to pour myself out to Christ. You know, there needs to be that meekness, that continually submitting myself to the word and to Christ and then having that hunger and that thirst to know God more, you know, to be here, to, 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 to grow in my relationship with him. See, I think we get the idea here that what Christ is asking for is opposed to everything that the prideful Pharisees were offering. You know, everything that they offered was something on the outside. It was all about looking the right part being the right places, being with the right people, rubbing shoulders, you know, with, with the authorities. It was all external. 
What Jesus Christ is talking about is something that happens deep within your heart and, and only within your heart. Christ will go on to call for mercy. He'll call for a purity of our heart. He'll call for us to be peacemakers. And all of these, they're all part of, of what it means to be part of God's kingdom. You know, what it means to be, to be part of and to be, to be a Christian. And it's interesting, the final blessed he gives is not in so much an attitude, but an, but an action in our life. He says in verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just think about that. Blessed are we when we're persecuted because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Our righteousness? No. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Blessed are you when you're persecuted because of that, because yours is heaven. It's an eternity. He goes on and says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I want you to think about that for a second. You, you know, you ever wonder why he uses these words at the end of the Beatitudes? He uses words like rejoice, be glad. I mean, those aren't words that we associate with persecution. Those aren't words that we associate with the world around us turning on us. Well, Christ promised in John chapter 15, verse 21, he said these words. He said, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know you. They do not know the one who sent, nor do they know the one who sent me. So, so the use of these words, rejoice and be glad, verse 12 can be taken to say be glad when you find yourself being persecuted because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because it's an indication that these other beatitudes are being followed and that heaven is waiting for you. It's an attitude that you've had that poor, poor in spirit and that you've mourned over your sin and you've submitted yourself to Christ and you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that you're pursuing that purity of your heart, that you're a peacemaker. You're going to be persecuted when you do those things. You're going to be persecuted when you follow Christ. Christ said, hey, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you as well for doing those things. So persecution, you know, if, you're, if your family, you know, maybe mocks your beliefs, your friends mocks a belief that you have, maybe even mocks you even coming to church, hey, that's a good thing. Because at the very least, you're at a place that you can hear the word of God. You can hear the truth. And ultimately, you can come to that place to accept Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. We've only kind of dipped our toe into this sermon, and we're probably going to be here for another oh, month or two um, when we get after Easter. Um, but it's a joy. Isn't it a joy to know right out from the beginning that every single person here can be saved? It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what you have ever done in your life. That if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, that right now, 
by just abandoning your own efforts, by turning your heart to Christ, by grieving and recognizing your sinfulness and your need for a Savior, that you can turn your life to Christ, that you can ask him to forgive you. And right now, if you are genuine in your heart, he is genuine in responding to that heart. doesn't matter. Everyone here, everyone here can be saved. And I invite you, if you have not given your heart to Christ yet, I mean, you may think that you have time. You know, at some point you don't have time. I, I, I love the testimony of, that Rebecca shared and what got her attention. You know, someone her age, someone, you know, she knew in a car accident, a realization that tomorrow isn't a guarantee and then it's too late. And, and I would just beseech you, you know, don't wait. You know, if you have more questions, come and talk to me. Talk to, to somebody here at the church who you know that knows Christ. Get those things answered. This is way too important, you know, to leave it to chance, to thinking that you're going to have enough time. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that my being here, my even standing up here, my being a pastor, Father, has not been dependent upon me or my goodness or my efforts, not even my holiness, Lord, but solely upon you, my humbleness before you, our humbleness and and not depending on ourselves, but be t depending on the cross. And Father, if there is anyone here today, right now, I pray that you would so convict the heart, because this is so important, Lord, that there will be no one who will go away from here. You know, not having said that, Lord, that, they, that they've accepted you. Father, whatever is going on later on this afternoon, nothing is more important than right now and them taking the time to pray and ask you into their heart. I thank you, God, as you do that. Remind us, Father, as children of yours, by whose grace we stand here today. And help us, Father, to go out into the world that is going to reject us, it's going to mock us, it's going to persecute us. Father, help us to be that light in the midst of that darkness. For the glory of your Son, we pray these things.